you have been able to hear the helicopters flying back to Fort Carson at night, but it feels like they're flying directly over overhead when they come back. And every time I hear them, and the other night it felt like there was a whole fleet that was coming back, so I don't know whether they finished their rescue operations, but I think probably they had, and they were just heading back to Fort Carson. But, you know, here I am in a place where everything's fine, there's been no leaking, I'm well, and my neighbors are well, and yet when I hear that noise, it immediately brings me in contact with the fact that not very far away, there's just been massive devastation, and people are very distressed and quite distraught still, trying to find a home or a place to live or, you know, a place to manage until the water recedes and they can get back and mitigate the damage to their homes. And so in thinking about the way this has been impacting me, because I'm an empath, I feel things, so even if I'm not experiencing it directly, I pick on what's going on around me, and it can be quite um, strong, the experience, what I'm actually navigating, even if I haven't experienced any danger myself. And so um, I saw something in conjunction with this that just made me, reminded me of one of the skillful ways of working with this is is to go into it. And, um, and I'm reminded of, a, of an occasion where I had a, a mole and there was a, a remote possibility that it was melanoma. And so they, they took it out. And when they, you know, when they're thinking something might be melanoma, they, they take out a chunk. They don't take out a small thing. And that happened when I was in the forest in Thailand. And I thought, you know, I'm on retreat. You know, why don't I just go for it? You know, rather than push it out of my mind as if, you know, there's a very remote possibility that this is possible, why don't I do the opposite and invite it in and see what would happen if I really explored, you know, somehow if that was melanoma and the melanoma has gone through my system and I've got six months or a year to live you know, what does that feel like? So not as a kind of opportunity to flip out, not as a thing to spin, but as a, as a deliberate contemplation of, you know, worst case scenario. What happens if I, if I welcome that as an exploration? You know, if I, if I really, if I look at something happens and I get a diagnosis and I've got six months to a year to live, now, I was on retreat, I don't know, for a week or so, and as it turned out, because they took out such a chunk and because I was in a tropical climate, they had to give me an antibiotic to keep the infection away. And Something happened with the antibiotic. The antibiotic reacted to my system. So it's like I had a, an instant case of rheumatoid arthritis, and so I was 
it's actually really sick and in a lot of physical discomfort. And so it was an uncomfortable week, both navigating the physical process as well as of really like looking at how would it feel if, if I knew or the doctors were telling me that I had a very limited chunk of time left and that was it. You know, what would I do? So we were talking about Barbara, who's a dear friend to three of us, and I met her in the year 1999. She came to the monastery um, I was living in. Ajahn Viradhamma was the abbot, and Ajahn V had met her. I can't remember. But was very, very impressed with her practice, and as a result of being very impressed with her practice, invited her to come visit us at the monastery. And I met her, and I just loved her, and so it was, you know, like soul sisters, you know, opening to each other's hearts. It was just very lovely. And her personal story is just is a little bit extraordinary. She, um, a brilliant woman, extraordinarily intelligent, very articulate. She was an artist, a sculptor, and she was working at university teaching sculpture classes. And she was in her 30s, and... Um, she had her first child, and something happened at the birth of her first child where she lost her hearing, and she lost her balance. And I don't know that they ever knew what had happened, but that's what happened. So she went from being an extremely articulate, very socially engaged person to being completely isolated and not being able to communicate. And she had a brand new baby, and she couldn't walk. So she had to crawl in order to get to where the baby was and take care of the baby because her balance got knocked out. And so her own personal life story um, unfolded with a lot of suffering, but she also had a lot of practice coming mostly from the Quaker background is where her actual experience was. And then she used to have um, kind of fantasies of, of of going into different realms and having Maharaji um, um, meet her in these different realms and teach her different things. So she was actually quite an avid practitioner as a child, even though she didn't have any formal practice. So in this context, she um, was just miserable, you know, and asking for support, and so an entity came to her. So not a being that was in flesh, but an entity in spirit came and, 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 and basically started to teach her meditation and saying, you know, I can help you, but the problem is not your deafness, the problem is the way you're relating to the deafness. And so gave her instructions, which then supported her, having quite a lot of insight and a lot of depth and a lot of shift from this anger and frustration and resentment to what had happened to her to and a, and a capacity to be with it and accept it. So I've known Barbara for, well, for 13, for 14 years now. And I don't know anybody who's had more catastrophes with her health. <laughs> I've known nobody who's had more accidents and more catastrophes and more weird things happening to her than Barbara. I mean, every, I just heard another one, you know, 
they don't have brown recluse spiders where she lives and she got bit by one or something that looks like it or acts like it anyway. So all of these health things have happened to her, all these incredible things. And one of the things that was just really extreme was she was swimming in the ocean and she got hammered by some waves and she broke bones in her face and she um, she was messed up. She was pretty badly messed up and she was in excruciating amount of pain for a very long time and it was just really touch and go. She didn't know if she was going to live through that because of the way that the wave smashed her and the way that she went underwater and that she, she actually lost consciousness underwater. So it was one of those things where it was a bit of a miracle that she came through it. But in the process of healing, because she'd broken some bones in her face, she had bleeding in her eyes. So there was a real concern that she might lose her sight. Now, anybody losing their sight is a loss. I mean, it would be a, a huge adjustment. But she's like 100% deaf. So to have a person who's 100% deaf lose their sight is like, I mean, it's hard to actually imagine. Yeah. So I was, I was there with her. I was around. I was living in, I was in the area, and I was back and forth with helping the community look after her and stuff and watching her process of embracing the reality of what was before her, where she actually didn't know if she was going to lose her sight. And I have just always been impressed with her willingness to touch what's there, invite it in, and and release the, the, the thinking, the accumulation, the, the desiring for it to be other than the way it is. So I was on the telephone with her yesterday, and she was telling me about this brown recluse spider with this wound that was this big for like five months on her. And something has happened to her nervous system where like, she doesn't have any muscle strength, so she'll just walk, and then all of a sudden her legs will buckle underneath her. You know, and you know she's going to get an MRI to just check and see, you know, what's happening if there's something else that's causing this. But listening to her, where she's both clear about the medical things that she needs to do, but also the sense of it will be what it will be. You know, there's nothing I can do other than what I'm doing. It will be what it will be, and I will cope with it and and for me one of the real like litmus tests acid tests of practice is this kind of stuff you know is it's like yeah it's nice to have a little bit more peace and sometimes it's nice when you're not sleeping and it sometimes it's nice when you know you can hang out with people and have a nice feeling together but when you're up against these kinds of walls and there's not a lot of movement in the wall and you have that capacity of the, the willingness to touch what's there and be honest with all of it and find a way to relax through it. To me it's like, yes, this is, this, this is why we practice. You know, this is why we practice.
So I had read this um, little synopsis of um, Stephen Levine and Andrea Levine have been um, really powerful people, not only in the meditation world, but in the hospice world and looking after people who are dying. And for like 30 or 40 years, that's been a real big part of their life, is helping people die and just midwife the process for the person as well as the family and the friends who are caring. And as a part of their experience, one of the things that they have done is is they wrote a book called A Year to Live, where they invite people to really take it on board that, okay, you've been given a diagnosis, you've got a year. What do you want to do? What's important to you? What kind of choices do you want to make? You know, how do you want this to finish up? What do you want your funeral to look like? Really go through it as if it's real. You know, to really take it on board as if it is real. And when we think like that, like I was thinking, you know, when I had this possible little melanoma thing, you know, well, I took it on board as, okay, so if this is real, you know what's important to me. It's very powerful the way it cuts through stuff that otherwise preoccupies our mind as being um, not where we want to put our attention. And it really dials in what's important in a way that's hard to mimic in other circumstances where we get that focused and that real about what's that important. Now, I'm remembering when I was living in Australia, I met a man by the name of Max. And Max also was a very inspiring person, immensely inspiring person. Brilliant, genius. I mean, genius, unbelievable genius. And he had um, designed a computer system that and a boat. He designed and built a boat and a computer system so that the boat was actually a solar-powered boat. And the way that it worked was is that the solar panels were connected to some kind of a, a, of a rig that they would change to move to be in the maximum position to get the sun. So he designed the software and the boat and built it and had it all kind of ready for the Olympics in uh, in Australia. And it was, you know, one of these things, these projects, it was crazy, you know, 18-hour days for like a year and a half. And the built boat was finished, it was good, and he was going on a retreat. And um, he was a very, very um, determined and committed practitioner. And he also was somebody who had a really strong resonance with the Bodhisattva vows, which is the vow to practice so that you can um, help benefit and free all other beings. So in south of Sydney was a Mahayana temple, and they had monastic retreats. So like we go on retreat for 10 days. You went and you could ordain for 10 days. You know, So in 10 days you shave your head and you put on the robes and you take all the precepts, including the bodhisattva vows, which are non-refundable. Once you take them, you can't hand them back. 
And um, he loved it. You know, he was really glad he could finally do this retreat after, you know, a grueling year and a half of insane work schedule and pressure. And then um, comes the end of his retreat, and he gives back his robes. He didn't give back, get back his hair. And um, his wife, what's his name? Begins with a D. I want to say Dorothy, but I don't think it was Dorothy. Came to pick him up. So before they left in the car to go back home, he went to the toilet. There's blood everywhere. So they didn't go back home. They went to the emergency hospital. And they did a bunch of tests on him. And it, it turned out he had, like, extremely advanced renal cancer. They gave him three weeks to live. Okay? Three weeks. So Max is a genius but he's also a really committed practitioner. So he thought, you know, I've got three weeks, what's important? And he thought, well, really what's important is, is that I can convey to my family and my friends how much I love them. That's important. And what was brilliant was he realized, and the greatest thing that's going to be able to help me do that is if I can love and accept myself. And somehow, and I don't know how, the combination of the potency of what he was navigating, the imminency of his demise, having just taken the Bodhisattva vows, and his own spiritual maturity, it was as if everything that was keeping himself from loving and accepting himself just fell away. And he was just lefting, resting in the space of love. So Max was amazing to hang out with, and everybody loved hanging out with Max. Because Max kind of really got it, that on some very profound level, he wasn't going anywhere, even though he really knew that his body was dying. He was not at all confused about that. But on a much deeper and more profound level, he had opened up to something that was really unchanging. It was beyond death. And he was comfortable in that. He wasn't confused. And he was luminous. He was radiant. So I'm pretty sure he was one of the sickest people that I have ever known. And he was one of the most radiant people that I have ever met. And he would go in with his scans, and the doctors would say to him, if any other person had shown me a scan like this, I would tell them, you've got three days to live. But with you, <laughs> come back in three months, you know. So it was almost as if his physiology started working according to laws of whatever that didn't make any sense to normal medicine. But there was something that was operating. And so he had more than three weeks. He had like two years. And he said that without a doubt that that was the best two years of his life because he really got it, that quality of being able to rest in knowing who he really was. So he, he knew his body was, was, was failing, and he knew his body was going to die. But he had found and connected and was resting in something 
that he knew would not die. And so he felt comfortable with the whole process, even though it was hard on him to watch his family watch him. So he had empathy for what they were witnessing. But for him, he was fine. He was absolutely fine. So, you know, in this recent storm, there have been, I don't know how many people died. I think I've heard five people die. And I don't know how many people are still missing. Yeah. They didn't have a year. You know, a year would be unbelievably luxurious. None of us know when we're going to die. We just don't know. And that is the reality of being a human being and breathing, is that we don't know. We simply don't know. So we live our life with the assumption that it's going to be sometime in the future. And that assumption means that there's all kinds of things that we miss because we haven't actually dialed into the fact that we don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know when we're going to die. You know, so I heard those helicopters and, you know, imagining the kind of distress of people having to be rescued from the helicopter and taken to their, another place and waiting until they can get back to their house and then, and then muck out and then fix and then sort, you know. And the people who died in the storm, you know, how much time did they have? Probably not much. You know, you're driving in a car and the road collapses underneath you and you're falling in a river. There's not much time. There's not much time. So without turning this into kind of like a morbid flip-out or fantasy or a papancha festival, to take it on board as an opportunity to really explore the fact that this fundamental truth is real. We actually don't know when we're going to die. And if we take that on board as a real thing to explore, then how does that shift the choices that we make in terms of what we spend our time doing, the quality of the way we are with the people we're around, our willingness to look at what we still have unfinished business with, with others, with ourselves, Who do we need to ask forgiveness for? Who do we need to extend forgiveness for? Who do we need to call on the phone and tell we love them? You know? Who, where, or how do we need to forgive ourselves? You know? So that like Max, there's nothing that's keeping ourselves from resting in that sense of full love and acceptance in the present moment. Do we actually need to have, you know, fourth-stage pancreatic cancer, renal cancer diagnosis to do that, to actually contemplate in that way? Can we bring attention to these questions, invite the contemplation, without actually having a disastrous diagnosis that we're navigating?
knowing that the reality is we don't know. We just simply do not know how long we're going to live. Now I know the book, A Year to Live, is very um, powerful, and the workshops and the classes that people have been doing around the country, around the world, have been very potent, because it holds the question alive, and it really asks people to consider various components of that, and walk through it as if it is really happening. And for some people, when they do that, they come out of it making really different choices. I just heard the, the person who was sharing this was, um, they had done a retreat, a year to live retreat, and a couple, a woman couple, had been so profoundly moved by their contemplation of this that they, they shifted their scene totally. And they went and they bought land off the grid and they built themselves a home that was in nature and connected to nature and not plugged in to the kind of crazy thing that happens in cities so that they could live this truth as fully as they as they as they wanted to so that retreat totally transformed their life because of the choices that they wanted to make afterwards In the traditional contemplation, you know, one of the things that we often chant is a, a, is a, a chant that lets us remember that we are subject to age, we're subject to sickness, and we're subject to death. And that everything that we appreciate or have any fondness for or everyone that we love will at some point be separated from us. So that we begin to live our life knowing that this is the reality rather than hoping that it wasn't. So I'll stop here and leave these reflections to consider. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.